right, welcome everybody to episode number 63 of Collectible Live. Today is Sunday, February the 26th, 2023, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I would like to thank everyone who tuned in last week, last Monday, with our guest Glenn Zerzolo of Metropolis Collectibles and Comic Connect. We had a great episode, learned quite a bit. You can check that out on the YouTube channel, but let's get to this week's guest, he is the president of REA Auctions, Brian Dwyer. Welcome to Collectible Live. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. It is, it's good to have you, Brian. And it's actually, it's good to have you back. You came on my Sports Cards Live show about a year and a half ago. And I had to look back to see exactly when it was. And boy, does time ever fly. How have you been since then? I've been good. I've been busy. I got a growing family, a growing business, but uh, I remember that appearance well. I had two T206 Honus Wagners with me, so one of the more fun appearances that I've done. I appreciate that. It was a, a lot of fun for me, too. Anytime you see your guests hold up two Honus Wagner T206 <laughs> cards, you know that you're you're doing something right when it comes to sports card and memorabilia content. Well, let's, let's jump in, and I want to start off with... Um, with this right now, here we are, February 2023. Uh, what are you seeing in the hobby right now, considering how the hobby has gone over the past couple of years? Yeah. So, I mean, if you just kind of look back to the last time that you and I spoke together, that was in the height of this booming craze, right? You couldn't trip over somebody that wasn't actively collecting and people were getting into sports cards and memorabilia for the first time. And so, thankfully, we've seen a lot of those people stay and from where we sit here at REA, you know, we've just concluded two of our monthly auctions to kick off 2023. We're seeing record bids. We're seeing record bidders, new bidders. So we feel like the hobby is in a really good place. Obviously, some people may have left from that boom of 2020 and 2021. But we feel that the people that are here are really passionate. They're here for the right reasons. And they're riding out any of this um, volatility or market correction that you might have seen over the last year or so. And you know, I, I agree. That's what I'm seeing, too. I, I want to know if you agree with this. I've said this recently on other shows that I've done is that I feel like the hobby right now is in a pretty healthy place. Like right now, because of the fact that, you know, we had people come in, some stayed, some left. As you said, the ones that stayed are passionate. But do you feel, does your gut tell you that we're in a good place right now in the hobby? Maybe we're set up for success as we move forward? Absolutely. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, I'm a young guy, but I've kind of seen this movie before to a certain extent. So, you know, I've been in the hobby as a full-time professional since 2007. And so we've seen during that period, economic uncertainty and political uncertainty and global, um, you know, uh, events that, that people have thought were going to affect prices and affect our hobby because this material is not you know, essential to life, so to speak. But we've written it all out and we've seen the hobby come away from all that stronger. And I agree with you, based on what we're seeing here, based on the prices that we're seeing, based on the conversations we're having with clients and based on, again, that engagement, we're, we're seeing record number of bids, record number of bidders, record number of new registrations. And for us, that all points to a very healthy hobby that maybe has got a couple blips on the radar but long-term is, is set up for success, in my opinion. Uh, that, that, that's really good to hear because I think there's there's been some fear that I've seen, you know, and it's a narrative you see on social media. And I often attribute it to people who maybe came in at the peak and they they aren't as, as excited or as optimistic, as bullish on the future of the hobby as people like you and I are who've been in this thing our whole lives. You know, I, I say I've, I've always been bullish on the hobby I, I, and I think I always will be because I just love it so much. And I can I can't understand how anybody could not be a part of our hobby. It's such a fun place to be and such a fun thing to uh, focus on and spend our money on and, and enjoy. So the negative uh, or some of the yeah, the negative narrative I've seen or the pessimism, I believe would come from people who maybe are, are not, they're not zoomed out. They're taking a more narrow view of you know, or, or it's their experience as well. They may be, again, they might, maybe they bought all their cards in 2021, all their items. And now they're seeing the values have come down. But I think in addition to people like that, a lot of those people stayed in the hobby. And that's, I think the biggest reason why I feel like we are in such a good spot and cards have come back down to earth in a lot of cases are more affordable. I think all these things do 
contribute to setting us up for that and us being the greater hobby for success as we move forward. Make sense? Yeah, no, def- definitely makes sense. And I mean, you you touched on it. It comes down to perspective, right? If this is the first time that you've seen your portfolio of cards decrease in value, if this is the first time that you've seen that low population card now have a couple more examples graded, you know, you, you don't know how to react. And so it's natural to feel uh, to feel fearful or to think that the sky is falling. But in reality, if you're in in this hobby long term, we've seen this before. We've seen that the hobby can ride it out. And the people that are here, we're hopeful, are, are passionate and, and willing to go along for that ride. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So I want to let everybody know if you've, if you've just joined, welcome to Collectible Live. Brian Dwyer from REA Auctions is our guest. We're going to continue with a, a discussion about the hobby together. And then we're going to move and we're going to look at the assets on the Collectible BWIC platform that are going live tonight this will be the second round of the bids wanted and competition on collectible uh and before we get it we continue brian let's just say hello to jake doll uh, always good to see you jeremy is foul five ball mark mater a past guest at collectible lives is rea definitely knows how to get their auction lots out to the winner in lightning speed what's the secret brian any any secret you want to spell you know, the secret for us is we're all collectors here. So we know that the the items are the most important thing. We know that you want to get them in your hands quickly. So the day after the auction, you know, we will have all been up until two o'clock in the morning taking the bids and we come in bright eyed and bushy tailed and we just start shipping because we know how important it is that our clients get their get their items. So I think it's the culture that we've created, the fact that we do have a lot of collectors here that understand the people who are on the other side of the, the coin for us. And uh, it just really comes down to hard work. You know, we, we all, we're all very proud of the product that we have and the brand that we've created and, and we want to keep that going. Yeah. Good stuff. Vintage card collector says I've noticed strong auction house prices. He's having trouble winning says, but eBay has been soft. High quality items seem to continue to move off eBay. That's a good observation vintage. And, And I mean, I'll get your opinion in a second, Brian, but my thoughts are that there are just so many more platforms than just eBay. And I think more and more people are realizing that. What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, eBay is obviously the the largest seller of trading cards in our hobby. So it's hard to argue with what they've built. But what we always sell to our clients and what we attribute to some of the success that we have with these prices realized is the fact that we have a very uh, organized, cohesive, captive group of items that we can put out to this captive audience. You know, people know when we're having auctions, they know they're going to be well-organized. They know they're going to have quality material in them. And when we get thousands of those types of people looking for that stuff in the same room, so to speak, um, lightning can can strike and you can turn in great prices. I mean, in this February auction that we just concluded, uh, we had a, a common, it, it struck me as incredible that it went for this, but it went for over $800. Mm-hmm. And to Vintage Card Collector's point, the, the previous week it had sold on eBay in the same grade, not that same card, for $350. So, you know, here it's 250% of the most recent comp. And I think it just comes down to organization and order and and captive audience with these auction houses. My next question was going to be like, let's talk about how trading card collecting is evolving. What are some of your perspectives there, Brian? Uh, But I want to, I want to kick it off with a more specific sort of topic being comps. Cause you just mentioned that, you know, a card sold for 300 or so. I think you said, then you sold it for $800. I've noticed the same thing happening. It could be, it, it could be a card on eBay sells for one price one week, the next week it sells for another price, same card. You know, it doesn't even matter how rare it is. I'm wondering, you know, comps are something that the hobby puts a lot of stock into, but how much, how much of a comp really comes down to who was who was tuned in, who was focused on it on that day? There, I don't think all comps are created equal. How would you kind of bounce off of that? No, I agree. I mean, I tell people frequently when they cite a price, good, bad, or indifferent, I tell people that the, the data is just one part of the equation, right? So you have these numbers in front of you, but it's up to you to interpret it. Was the scan high quality? Was the venue well known? Was it timed properly? Was it described properly? So, you know, you can have instances where a card sells in a, in a less trafficked venue or sells on eBay in the middle of the night. And naturally, it's just going to get a lower price 
than if it sells in an auction house like REA with this big scan and this great title and advertised um, you know, properly into a large group of potential bidders. So comps are important. I know a lot of people live and die by them, but I think a, a very important part of comps is being able to interpret that data and understanding that maybe the price is more than, than what you're seeing as a last, a last price, but maybe there's a very good reason for it. So interpreting the data is very important. Yeah, that's really well said. Great point you made there. What other ways are you seeing trading card collecting evolving over the past couple of years? So sticking to the theme of comps, I mean, the, the availability of data and the, and the rise of technology. You know, when I first started in this hobby, uh, I, I signed up for eBay in 1998. I signed up for PSA in 1999. And from about 2000 to 2008, I made a living just off the inefficiencies of this market. There was not widespread um, archived price data. There was not historical pricing like we have available today with either PSA's um, APR pricing or vintage card prices. And, you know, I, I honed in on a specific segment of the hobby and I was keeping track of historical prices on notepads and, and trying to, you know, learn and, and, and get an edge up on the market. And that worked well for me. But what we've seen in the last several years is that that playing field has leveled and you have companies that are aggregating these prices and aggregating the data and making it available. And, you know, it may seem based on the story that I was just telling that I'm not a fan of that, but I'm actually a huge fan of that because it's brought more people into our hobby and it's given people greater confidence to bid and to participate because they have all this data at their fingertips. And so technology and, and the availability of data is probably the greatest change that I've seen in the last couple of years. And it's what I think will continue to grow. And I think it's what will continue to grow the hobby. Um, you mentioned earlier the, the number of platforms. You know, it seems like there's a lot of opportunities to buy sports cards and memorabilia. And, and that is the case. You have standalone auction platforms like REA. You obviously have the, the global eBay uh, network. And then you have social media, you know, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. I'm hearing about card deals of uh, not insignificant sizes being done on social media. So that's exciting, too, because it's branching out our, our reach and, uh, you know, worldwide audience. And, and that's very exciting. And that's something that I think will continue to grow as well. Do you feel that we have too many platforms, too many auction houses? Uh, or have we, have we kind of reached a peak there? Or do you think that there's room for, and I mean, it's an interesting question. You, you are the president of a very reputable auction house, but you know, despite that, what do you think about the proliferation of, of platforms and different businesses and consignment sellers all coming along uh, in the last couple of years and, and offering their services? It's an interesting point, and it's one that I, I think about uh, every so often, you know, because how is it going to, going to affect our business? And I do think that we're poised for some consolidation. Uh, I do think that for a very long time, the barrier to entry, specifically on the auction platform side, was quite low. But what you're seeing now is it's taking more technology, it's taking more money, it's taking more resources all around to compete at the highest level. And the collectors and the consigners that have these marquee pieces, they've kind of honed in on, on a small group of platforms that are the most trusted and, and, and going to deliver them the best price. So while I do think that there's a lot of different niches that are served by these platforms, I think in the next couple of years, you're going to see some consolidation as that resource race kind of uh, hits a fever pitch. I, I think, yeah, I think one of the most important things is the brand, the reputation of the brand, the integrity of the brand. But I like to go one level deeper and talk about the integrity of the people behind the brand and, uh, and really if they are trusted. And that's, a, that's one of the great things about shows like this is that it, it lets the audience, it lets people in the hobby meet the people behind the brands yep. and behind the businesses. And then they can decide for themselves if they like you, if they find you trustworthy, then they may want to do business with you for the first time, continue to. Uh, that sort of thing. So I, I, I want to, you know, kudos for coming on to the show and making yourself available. I think that's that's a great thing. Um, what else are you forecasting for the next few years in the hobby besides consolidation? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the consolidation um, 
that I referenced is is something that I forecast for maybe only like the auction side of the business. I do think there's a lot of opportunity for more hobby businesses. You know, we've seen uh, these data companies, we've seen even fractional ownership companies like Collectible making a serious play in the last couple of years. We've seen grading companies challenging some of the established, uh, you know, properties in that in that field. So I do think that there's still room uh, even though everywhere you look, there's a new hobby business. I do think there's still room in some of these these sectors. On the market side, I think that there's some of these um, collectibles that are still in the very early stages of their their growth cycle. You know, we we deal with sports cards and memorabilia, uh, but there's elements of the memorabilia part of this industry that I think are are still largely untapped. You know, you have original photography, you have tickets, you have game used memorabilia. These are these are parts of the hobby that I think are poised for more education, more learning and and more exposure to maybe some of the people that have cut their teeth on the trading card side of the business. And that will be very fun to watch. And I'm excited to see both the prices that are realized and kind of what comes out of the woodwork, because oftentimes it takes really significant prices to uh, induce people to sell. Yeah. And we'll take a look at a couple of assets or collectibles uh, like type one photos. When we look at the assets on BWIC and speaking of BWIC or bids wanted in competition, we talk about innovation and you mentioned collectible on the fractional side of things. I mean, they've even created a whole new way of buying and selling cards on their platform. And I think that's, that's pretty cool because back, you know, until pretty recently it was simply, eBay, traditional auction houses and card shows and card shops. And now there are all these, well, several new methods upon which you can, you can, you know, create liquidity, you can offer cards, buy cards and just get involved in the hobby. Um, so I want to ask you this, speaking of new ways to, to buy and sell cards, Fanatics recently announced that they were going to make a move into the live shopping uh, space. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, just in general. Well, I mean, I think it's it's hard to bet against fanatics, right? They have a uh, significant track record behind them. They've been growing exponentially from their earliest days, and even to just when they entered this hobby with the acquisition of Tops a couple, you know, probably not even two years ago. Um, so I'll be interested to see what what they roll out. I think uh, you know, a company like Whatnot um, is probably the the leader in the live shopping experience right now in our industry, but. Um, you know, fanatics could could be a behemoth if if they want to, and I'll be curious to see how it's embraced. You know, uh, frankly, for someone like me, I have no experience in the live shopping realm. It's interesting and it's intriguing, and I'm keeping an eye on it because if that's a way that REA could you know better serve its clients or add to its suite of services, then I then I want to be aware of it. Um, but I I think it'll be it'll be fun to watch and it'll be interesting to see if it sticks because this is a hobby of precedent. And this is a hobby of tradition. And this is a hobby of uh, sometimes resisting change. And so it'll be interesting to see if we can get, um, you know, behind something like live shopping. And, you, you know, eBay is also has also launched a live shopping uh, division of their services. And um, I've seen a little bit on it, but I'm surprised I haven't seen as much, which makes me think that a fanatics could come along and kind of take that number one spot pretty quickly if they really want to. And I think if they're going to get into it, they're going to really want to take the number one spot. And then what does that mean for the competitors like Whatnot and Loop and Card Shop Live and Drip? I mean, those are four others that I'm aware of, never mind eBay and, you know, and, and Facebook. Yeah, so it just kind of goes back to the point we were talking about with the with the auction house platform. So, um, you know, there may be opportunities for some of those other companies to serve niches that are not served by fanatics or to shine a light on areas and segments of the industry that are not highlighted by fanatics. So I don't know that fanatics is going to come in and push everybody out on day one, but I think they're obviously a serious, uh, a serious business. They're well capitalized. Whatnot has significant money behind them. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I imagine these were the same conversations they were having about online auctions in the 80s and 90s and and look where we are today. So it'll be fun to watch. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. It will be. Let's go to some comments. Hockey cards up. 
Welcome to the show. Uh, Lindsay Whited says, what do you think? Kind of off topic, but that's okay. Lindsay says, what do you think of 1996 metal hockey set and inserts, including superpowers? They predate PMGs and look pretty amazing. Well, uh, I bring this, I, I brought this comment on number one because Lindsay put it in there, but also because I recently picked up like six of those exact cards at the Burbank card show, Lindsay. So what do I think of them? I absolutely love them. And I think they are flying under the radar. These are all superpowers. So um, yeah, uh, thanks for the comment. I I, I love the cards. Uh, Irish Heart says, what's your thoughts on cards being sold on Instagram? Any comments there, Brian? Yeah, so I mean, I, I alluded to it earlier. I've heard of some very serious deals being done on social media, but on the flip side, I've also heard of some serious ripoffs being done on social media. So that's one of the things that a company like REA offers their their buyers and sellers. There's there's this vetting that goes into our process where you know if you bid on an item, you're going to get that item, and if you can sign that item, you're going to get paid for it. And and social media to this point. Uh, there's not that policing, there's not that sense of security, and there's not that vetting of both sides. So I, I always tell people exercise caution. If it's too good to be true, you know, stop and pause and do your research. But uh, I'm all for it. I think, you know, transactions, wherever they happen, are good for the hobby and get, get people involved. They've just got to be done safely. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice right there. Right now, it is self-regulated, self-policed. And uh, there are scammer pages that you can look up and see who's been called out already. But um, just be very, very careful. Uh, Bobby Burrell, good evening. Uh, looking forward to having you for the conversation. A vintage card collector wants to know, have you seen an increase in non-paying winners? What percent of non-payers is typical for your auctions? So going back to what I was just saying about uh, the buyer and seller vetting, we have been very fortunate that we have an over 99% collection rate. Uh, there are certain auctions more often than not that we have a 100% collection rate. So we've been very fortunate uh, that we've done our homework. We've vetted our, our buyers. That gives the sellers confidence that when they when they can sign with REA, they're going to get paid. So no, with us, we have not seen an increase in non-paying winners. Uh, we, we sold something in the neighborhood of 35,000 items last year. We had fewer than 10 uh, not paid for in the entire year. And I mean, in that case, it could be that the bidder literally passed away in between buying and and having to pay. Like that that, that's a true story. Frankly, uh, it happened really? in our January auction. Unfortunately, the gentleman passed away uh, the the night of the auction closing. So yeah, sometimes it's a very legitimate, unfortunate reason. But for us, we we've got a really strong buyer pool. We feel really good about what we're offering our sellers. Well, my my condolences go to that family. Yeah, uh, Jeff Hart. Uh, yeah, good evening, Jeff, and good to see you here as always. Bobby Burrell says the auction house industry historically represented preeminent memorabilia. Do you find the more recent influx of high end sports cards going forward in dominance? Yeah, so auction houses uh, historically have been used to highlight these these items that are tough to price or tough to sell. And, and I do see that going forward. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I have an example uh, right here on my desk. I love a good show and tell, right? So this is a PSA 9 1955 Topps Clemente rookie. This is a card that last sold for over a million dollars. This is a card that you can't really sell on Instagram. You might feel uh, nervous about putting out yourself on eBay. So you come to an auction house and you let them uh, put it in their catalog and present it to their high net worth clients and do a really good job of, of exposure, you know, getting you with the exposure and the publicity and, and getting the price. And so I do see that continuing because for a lot of people, they, they don't know how to market a card. And when they bought it, you know, they, they bought it from an auction house, most likely. So auction houses have a very real and very important role. And I do see that continuing. Great. Yeah. Well, Jake Dahl says, uh, awesome Clemente, which I, I must agree with. Bobby Burrell says, guess I set you up, Brian. We're going to continue to set him up in a moment here. And Lindsay, uh, you are welcome, says big hockey collector. Hope to see hockey cards get more love. Um, so Brian, let me let's let's ask you this then. What are what are some of the more you more most unique cards that you've had kind of go through your hands through your collection over the last little while? I, I'm very fortunate in that I tell people I have the best collection in the world several times a year. You know, a typical REA auction has 
3,000 to 3,500 lots that does 15, $20 million sometimes. And so I've been with REA for going on 11 years now. We've sold 10 T206 Honus Wagners. We've sold six Baltimore News Ruths. We've sold three of the eight known Joe Doyle rarities from the T206 set. So, I mean, we, we've sold some very impressive uh, items. We sold a 52 Mantle that was once owned by Mickey Mantle. I mean, how cool is that? So, um, you know, those are, the, those are the very well-known and the very high dollar cards that we've sold. But we've also sold some stuff that's just so rare, you don't even know it exists, you know, whether it's rare Cuban cards that we sold an Oscar Charleston rookie last year for over $130,000 that I had never seen in person before. Um, we just took in a big hockey collection that we're going to be breaking down starting in this spring auction. I hadn't seen some of those uh, very obscure 1910s and 20s and 30s team issues, uh, hundreds of beehive cabinets, you know, uh, premium photos. So um, every day is an adventure here, which I love. And sometimes the cool cards or the exciting and interesting cards are not necessarily the most valuable. Um, but uh, yeah, we're lucky. We see a lot of really cool stuff. Well, speaking of valuable cards, Vintage Card Collector wants to know, does having a few very high-end items, say 500K plus, in an auction, bring more bidders and raise overall visibility and prices throughout the other items as well? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, we have cards that will sell for a hundred dollars. We have cards that will sell for a million dollars. In my opinion, what having these high-end cards does for an auction house like REA and, and others is bring in a clientele that has the ability to purchase absolutely anything in the auction. So if you come to the auction intent on winning that Clemente card, but you're the underbidder because there can only be one winner you theoretically have 900000 or a million dollars in your pocket that you can spend in that auction. And so for us, we, we like having these really high-end items. We like bringing in a high net worth uh, crowd that can come in and can sprinkle their bids all around the auction. And we've seen that really work out well. We've seen people come in to bid on Wagner's and stay to build T206 sets and win $50 commons from us. Um, but, you know, it's you always get excited when you have a big $500,000 or a million, or in the case of the Wagner that we sold when you and I last spoke, $6.6 .6 million card. Well, I know whenever I'm shopping on any particular auction platform, if there's one item that I really want, I am prone to maybe adding a couple more to the basket because it just seems convenient. You maybe save a bit on shipping and you're already sending them some money. So why not just send a little bit more? And I'm, I'm not saying I recommend that, but <laughs> we <it's>, do. <laughs> yeah, you do for sure. But, uh, but it's just how I've, uh, how I've operated in the past. So uh, what's up, Baz? Good to see you. Bobby Burrell says, who doesn't want to wake up to a treasure hunt? Exactly. Uh, Jake Dahl says, has REA ever sold a Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb game-used jersey? We have not sold a Babe Ruth or a Ty Cobb game-used jersey. No, we have sold a, uh, a number of Babe Ruth bats. Uh, we've sold a number of Ty Cobb autographs, including uh, we've got some great Ty Cobb signed letters and single sign ball coming up in our spring auction. Um, but but uh, Babe Ruth bats about as, as close to a jersey as we've come. Very cool. Uh, anything else you'd like to chat about? Anything else on your mind, hobby-wise, auction-wise, uh, before we do dive in? And we've got 30 assets in the collectible Bids Wanted in Competition uh, offering this month. And I mean, Brian, there's some phenomenal pieces in here, stuff that I'm sure you're very uh, aware of and have knowledge on. I can't wait to get your opinions on some of these things. But before we do that, anything else that you'd like to touch on? Well, I don't want to leave my other show and tell pieces on the cutting room floor. So I'll flash a couple for them, uh, for you and for your viewers. So these are all spring auction highlights. We have a 1932 U.S. Caramel Babe Ruth graded an eight, uh, the highest grade I've seen in a very long time, a seven nearly uh, sold for $100,000 recently. We have a 49 Bowman Jackie Robinson and a nine one of my favorite cards all time. I just love how simple it is, but how powerful that image is. Obviously, a very significant card and significant set. Uh, going back to the Clemente, we have the two key rookies in nine from this set. So Koufax in a nine and uh, Clemente in a nine. Those will both be in the spring auction. 
And then the last piece I was talking about items and, and, uh, and segments of the hobby that I think might be poised for some growth. This is the original photo used for the Toleteros Josh Gibson rookie card. Hmm. So this dates to 1950. The rookie card itself is very scarce, uh, but this is the only example of this type one photo we've ever seen. And so that's a photo that we believe will be six figures easily when that auction ends in, uh, in the middle of April. Oh, that's awesome. And for anybody who's, uh, who's, if you're watching and you have never received the REA auction catalog, I have to tell you, it is the, to me, it's the, it's the best catalog going. I absolutely love receiving it when I do uh, a few, several, you know, whatever it is, three or four or five times a year, Brian, um, you guys put a lot of work into it. And I, and I think we touched on it when you were on with me about a year and a half ago, that even the, the expense that you incur to put out that catalog must be vast because it is literally like you're putting out a serious publication how many, how often do you, how often do you hold your auctions now? So we have three catalog auctions every year that we have them in April, August, and December. And then we have seven of those monthly non-catalog auctions that I was alluding to earlier. But yeah, to your point, I mean, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every year on producing these catalogs. The last one we put out was nearly 700 pages. They're all full color. Every item's pictured in there. A lot of the items have descriptions and, and we think it's our greatest marketing tool. But what we have found is that it's highly educational for people too, because you have really serious, uh, you know, collectors have been doing this 30, 40, 50 years. And then you have novices, people that are coming into the hobby for the first time, like we were talking about. And this is an instant opportunity for them to see stuff they've never seen and learn about it. So we give them away for free. Anybody that's watching is welcome to go to our website, robertedwardauctions.com and request one and uh, drop sports card live in there as your reference and we'll get it right out to you. Oh, cool. Thank you for that. Okay. couple questions before we get into the BWIC stuff. Uh, Rag wants to know, are you noticing more international bidders and buyers in the hobby when you ship out the auction winnings? Are they going to international addresses? Yeah. So we definitely, we, last year we had winning bidders in over 20 countries uh, so that's pretty significant. Uh, we have found that a lot of the international buyers do have U.S. addresses set up, either forwarding companies or uh, maybe some vaults that are established in, in the industry. But we do ship a fair bit internationally. Um, we ship to Asia every auction. We ship into Canada a lot, Australia. Um, we shipped to Africa last year. So you never know where something's going to end up. And Vintage Card Collector has a question. Uh, REA is always heavy on vintage baseball. How does Brian see the market for vintage football, basketball, and hockey going forward? I do love this question too, Vintage. Thank yeah. you for asking. No, it's a, it's a great question. And you know what I tell people is, yes, REA's reputation is uh, for vintage baseball. There's just a lot more of that that was produced and a lot more of that available. And, and I wish that we could go to walmart or target and pick up football sets and basketball sets and hockey sets for every auction but you know unfortunately it's a it's a function of what consigners bring to us so when we get that material and i alluded to that hockey collection that's coming up for auction starting this spring uh, people love it you know you're a hockey collector you're very passionate about what what you're collecting and what you're looking for and so i think that the market will be strong when that stuff gets gets put up for auction. We love having it. It's it's uh, you know gives our catalog flavor, and we encourage people to give us more of it. Right on. Bobby Burrell makes the comment that first generation photos are somewhat underappreciated, but even more so in hockey. All right, so I'm going to share my screen, Brian, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of go through these assets on the collectible Bewick platform. There's some good stuff here. Starting off with this piece right in the middle. 1933 Gaudi number 144 Babe Ruth. I know you've dealt, I mean, you just mentioned how many Wagners you've sold, T206. I mean, you've probably sold dozens and dozens of this card, but look at the look at this particular copy. It looks stunning to me. What are your comments on on this copy that you're seeing in front of you right now, but also this card itself and its importance? Yeah, so I looked at this copy uh, earlier before we jumped on here, and I was really struck by the color and the clarity and the centering on this particular example. So, you know, we've handled hundreds, if not thousands, of Gaudis in the last uh, 
several years and they come all sorts of, of centerings. You know, you'll see them completely cut to one side, you'll see them dead centered and you'll see them everywhere in between. So I was really struck by the, the centering on this. Registration can be an issue with this particular card. You know, there's a lot of image there in the of, of Ruth standing. So this one looks dead on. I'm a big fan. The Gaudi Ruths were something that I added to my collection as soon as I could afford them. And uh, this one should do very well. And for anybody who's wondering what the BWIC is, it's bids wanted in competition. It's a uh, This is the second month that Collectible has offered it. There's 30 different pieces or lots or assets available. And I would encourage you to go to the Collectible website and learn about how you can really get in on the action and make a play for one of these pieces. Also on this top row, Brian, we've got a 1925 exhibits Lou Gehrig. And then kind of an opposite offering is a Patrick Mahomes flawless NFL shield. Any comments on either of these? I, I'm guessing you have more expertise on the Gehrig exhibits. Yeah, so we, we've handled a bunch of them. Uh, you know, this seeing this signed example in the condition that it's in is just unbelievable. I mean, this is a card that, frankly, I don't even know how it exists. When they're unsigned, they sell for six figures. So this is very impressive. But, you know, Mahomes isn't necessarily out of place on that because Ruth and Gehrig are greats of the game. They dominated when they played. We're talking about them generations later. And I think Mahomes is going to be in that category. You know, he has put up very impressive numbers. He's accomplished so much in such a short period of time that I think he's going to be on that uh, all-time great list when when your grandkids and my grandkids are talking here in a couple couple decades. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it's always fun to think forward like that. Hello, Collector's Dream says REA is awesome. Best vintage auctions. Been using for years. Got a 52 Minoso in a recent auction very nice collector's dream let's go on to this row so another Mahomes a Jason Tatum who's seems to be having a great start to his career a great season and then we have a wine offering uh what would you like to say you know we we, we touched on Mahomes I'll just add to the Mahomes discussion that this is his national treasures RPA or rookie patch auto numbered out of 99 no sorry this must this is a, a parallel numbered out of 15 extremely rare on-card autograph beautiful piece and something that is uh you know one of the probably one of the most desired sports cards in all of the hobby right now along with the one that's over your that would be your right shoulder the painting yeah. i noticed that earlier you're painting a mickey mantle and there is a mickey mantle coming up what about jason tatum is 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 the jason tatum flawless rookie patch auto something that that you have any sort of um experience with yeah. So, you know, we, REA is known for vintage baseball, but when we kind of go out of that lane, we, we look for pieces that are very special. And so a card like this Tatum has an autograph, has a patch from a very highly collected, you know, important modern set. Uh, this is a card that would fit very well in an REA auction. And when we have them, we tell our clients, you want to buy the best of the best. You know, you want to buy that autograph patch card from that influential series and and really be selective about where you're putting your money and so this is a great card like you said tatum's been a star player uh not much more we can say about mahomes but the wine is actually really interesting i noticed that this appears to be the first time collectibles branching out into that space and and it's nice to see different offerings in their catalog i think it has the potential to bring in new people into the sports world which obviously i'm all for and these wines come from cult wines. We had we had Atul Tawari, who is their uh, an executive with with uh, with cult wines. You can see right here, uh, cult curated by I'm sure by Atul himself. And if anyone is interested in learning more about this offering on the Bewick platform on Collectible, or watching a full episode that I did here on Collectible Live with Atul, uh, please check that out on the YouTube channel. And as we continue down, I'm actually going to show the next two rows at once. And let's talk about the original comic art. You can see there's three offerings on here, a Marvel's Greatest Comics. We've got a Spidey and we've got Once an Avenger. And I, I'll tell you, Brian, uh, working with Collectible has been an amazing experience because Ezra and the team introduced me to all sorts of people in, in, in other collectible categories that I would never have come across, like... like um, 
like uh, Mr. Zerzolo from yeah. from Metropolis Comics and and Comic Connect, as well as Glenn Brunswick from Panel Page Art. These guys deal in this stuff all the time, and I got to do the last two episodes were with these two gentlemen. So I would encourage people to go back and watch those if you're interested. But what about you, Brian? Com original comic art. I've always thought comic books were kind of uh, more interesting, more colorful. And then I learned a lot and I realized how how cool original comic art is. Have you ever dealt in any of it? And what are your thoughts? Yeah, so we, we have handled some comic art in, in our history. We actually deal with a lot of original art from some of these non-sports sets that are more in the sports world than, than the comic world. But they're all, they're, all, they're all fascinating. They're obviously the base layer, the genesis of these things that we enjoy today. And, and I love, again, kind of in the same vein as the wine. I love the exposure that um, our hobby will have to their hobby and vice versa you know, comic books and trading cards have been linked from the earliest days of the playground. And so I think there's a lot of natural crossover. REA has handled select comics in the past when we feel like we can do a good job for consigners because we know that guys generally grew up collecting both of those. Yeah, you're right. I like the, I like the schoolyard reference. Well, some nice original comic art pieces on, on the, on the Bewick platform this month. And then we have, I mean, what is the number one most iconic sports card in the hobby? The 52 Tops Mickey Mantle. You even have a painting of it over your right shoulder. So speak to that and just, and I'm assuming, I'm hoping you went and looked at this copy earlier today. It's an SGC5. Uh, looks gorgeous to me. What are your thoughts on this copy? It's a great, it's a great looking example. It's got tremendous color. Again, like I was talking about on the Ruth, you know, these are cards that in and of themselves are not particularly rare, but it's rare to find really strong copies for the grade. And so that's what I think people will uh, hone in on, on both of these assets is the fact that they present really nicely for the grade. Uh, 52 Mantle, that's a card that means a lot to me personally, means a lot to the hobby. I remember going to my first national in 2003 and seeing one in person for the first time. And, uh, and now I, I have one behind me every day. So you cannot go wrong with a 52 mantle. Well, we have that in common. I also have a painting of a 52 tops Mickey mantle that hangs in my rec room just behind that wall right there. So uh, I, I love the card as well. I've never owned one myself. I do have his 51 Bowman rookie card, but I've never had a copy of the 52 tops. And uh, to say I covet one would be an understatement. You're going to have about five chances in the REA spring auction. So, all right. Well, if there's one in, if there's one in low enough grade that looks nice, I'll definitely be taking a close look. Tickets, signed tickets. Here's a collection of 1958 World Cup signed tickets. Looks like they're uh, signed by Pele. It looks like each of them are signed by, by Pele. Your thoughts on tickets in general and maybe just how unique it is to, to be able to have the opportunity to own a collection like this. So I was really struck by this when I was perusing the catalog earlier, because I mentioned ticket collecting as being in the very early stages, in my opinion, like the early innings of this game. And, you know, I think about myself personally, I never really kept my tickets. I, I went to a lot of concerts. I went to a lot of sporting events and I always looked at the tickets as just the means to the end, right? Got me in the door. And then whatever happened to that ticket was an afterthought. And I don't think I'm alone in that take, which contributes to the scarcity of a lot of these tickets, specifically these older tickets. And we're breaking down a collection of over 10,000 baseball tickets right now. And it blows my mind that some of these, some of these exist. So to see these world cup tickets that were kept for, you know, 65 years, and then someone had the forethought to get perhaps one of the most famous influential sports figures of all time to sign them. Uh, I just, the tickets themselves shouldn't exist. The signed group shouldn't exist. I was blown away by this group. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. That's a that, that high praise from you on this collection and really, really shines light on just how important that that collection is. Uh, Get Swifty says, just wanted to say thanks for coming on, Brian. I'm so glad to see collectible on desktop instead of the app. My phone could not handle the app and shut down often. Well, that's, I'm ho hopefully someone from collectible is watching and they can take a look at that for you. Uh, Ped's card collection says REA always has the highest quality auctions 
in the business. Very nice comment from you. Peds card collection. All right, let's go. Let's talk about these two cards right here, Brian. I'm a kid of the 80s. I grew up in the 80s. WWF, the AWA before that. And then the WWF, I think they called the WWE now, which is something I was I was kind of uh, wasn't following it at that point. But right in front of us here are the two superstars of wrestling that I remember the most from when I was a kid in the 80s. Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant. These are both in BGS 9.5 holders. Uh, these cards, too, I feel, Brian, like could have gone to the national in the mid-2000s, 2003, 4, 5, 6, and found this whole set wrapped in cellophane for 50 bucks. That is no longer the case. What are you, am I wrong? Am I remembering that incorrectly? Talk a bit about how these two cards have gone from maybe, you know, something that you would just overlook to being major pieces in the hobby. Yeah, so you're you're 100% right. I mean, these were an afterthought for the longest period of time, but it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, the ubiquity of social media, the availability of data, the availability of people being able to say, look how rare these are in high grade. Look how undervalued these are compared to the population. And and that shines a light on, on areas of our hobby like these cards. Um, I was never a wrestling fan myself, but two years ago, Someone who did exactly what you said, bought the bought the original wrapped set, came into our office and said he wanted to get the whole set graded. And he let me open the set at our conference room table. We filmed it and uh, we put every card in a card saver and we were going to send them off to PSA for grading. And we got a lot of sixes and sevens. And this was a set that was in the original wrapping, but quality control was poor. The corners were bashed in on some of the cards. And ultimately it did well because it was rare to have a whole set, but to see 9.5s as someone that has opened a set, uh, I, I can't even imagine getting a nine or a 9.5 or a 10. So very, very cool to see these two. And you said quality control wasn't exactly top of mind when these were produced back then centering being a big problem right out of the gate. And these two from this angle look to be beautifully centered. All right. The next drill, we've got a Joe Burrow, Rookie patch auto. We've got a uh, Michael Jordan. I'm not sure what this this is. The oh yeah, the Bulls interlake card. And then finally in this row, a gorgeous T206 Ty Cobb bat on shoulder in a PSA 5.5 holder. I'll let you just speak to these in whichever order you'd like. Well, I'll just go left to right. So I mean, Burrow I think is going to be in that conversation with Mahomes. You know, obviously Mahomes has. Uh, the advantage when it comes to Super Bowls, but Burrow's been in the conversation in, in all the years that he's been in the league. So I think I'm very excited to see what he'll do going forward. And I think patch and auto and significant set in, in high grade uh, is that combination that I would advise people to consider. The interlake Jordan, I mean, that's a big card for people that don't realize what you're looking at. That's like five by seven, six by nine. I forget the dimensions exactly, but really hard to get in high grade. These are cards that there were no great method of storage in the mid 1980s for cards of that size. And, uh, and they didn't exist in high grade. It's also a heavily counterfeited card. And we know from personal experience that Beckett has the expertise to distinguish good from bad. And, uh, you know, seeing this Beckett 9.5 example is, uh, I would advise people obviously to go graded rather than raw. In, in the Interlake uh, example. And then Tito Six Ty Cobb, one of the first cards that I bought when I got into vintage. This is a 5.5. It was struck by the centering on this card. Great image, good color. Um, you know, just a classic blue chip when it comes to vintage card investing. So I think that'll do very well. So two comments. First is, I liked how you said the Michael Jordan, that is a big card. Not only is it important, but it's big in size. So that was a oh, yeah, a, yeah, large a, size. Yep. yeah, a bit of a pun there. But the Ty Cobb. So in the T206 series, Ty Cobb has, I believe, is it three different cards? There's the green portrait, the red yeah, portrait. Four. Yeah, four. so he's got uh, green portrait, red portrait, bat on shoulder, which is this example, and then bat off shoulder. And is, is there a ranking in terms of how the hobby views these in terms of importance or popularity? So the green has always been the scarcest um, from my experience. So that gets a lot of people's attention that if all things are equal, same grades will generally be the most expensive of the Cobb cards. 
but people love the bat on and the bat off. Obviously, this is the bat on shoulder because it pictures Cobb with his bat, and that's what he was known for. So the portraits are great. They're beautiful cards, but it's hard to argue of a nice Cobb batting card. I've always, uh, for me, wanted to have the red portrait because I think it's a very nice card. It's uh, less expensive than, than than the green, and they're the exact same picture, just a different colored background. Yep. But as of quite recently, these this bat on shoulder, and I don't, I can't picture the bat off shoulder. Is it similar in image? It's similar. It's got a little bit of a different background, still very colorful, but his bat is uh, parallel to his body, so it's very noticeably away from his body. Oh, yeah. Well, in any event, this card is really growing on me uh, recently. So I, I I do love it. Okay, let's keep on going. In the next row here, we've got a type one Bobby Jones from his rookie card. Type one photo from his rookie card. That's pretty cool. A dual patch autograph of Michael Jordan and LeBron James numbered out of 23. And finally, a 2007 exquisite Michael Jordan uh, quad patch autograph. Looks like all three autographs we see are on card on this row. Uh, I'm going to turn it back over to you, Brian. Speak yeah. to these uh, wonderful pieces. Yeah, so Bobby, uh, Bobby, actually Bobby Burrell brought up a great point that, you know, original photography is undervalued in hockey. I would argue even more so in golf. You know, the, the baseball photographs have dominated the prices realized we've seen great prices realized in basketball for Jordan images. And, you know, we've sold the George Mikan rookie image, which is an iconic basketball card. Uh, football's gotten some respect with Jim Brown's original rookie photo, which I believe is trading on collectible also. But if this were Babe Ruth, we'd be talking about a collectible that was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars from his rookie year. And we're talking about Bobby Jones at a much more affordable level. So again, I think photography is in its infancy in this hobby. I think this is very, um, it's a very compelling image. It's significant. It's early. I'm excited to see what this would do. The two basketball cards, again, two greats of the game, high grade, good combination, on-card autos preferred to some of the sticker autos that we're, we're seeing today. So hard, hard to go wrong with either of those. Yeah, you mentioned that you uh, you've sold the George Mikan rookie card photo, and I think we talked about that when you were on with me uh, back a year and a half ago. Uh, and if I recall, we mentioned how in the image you can see the people standing and watching, and it seemed like there weren't even stands. It was almost as if it was in a gymnasium, and you saw some men and some women in the background. Whereas the the rookie card, the I, I believe it's the forty eight Bowman yeah. uh, Mikan rookie card. There's no there's the 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 stands, the background, it's all kind of blacked out or painted out by uh, by the by the blue background. Um, but what a cool piece! Yeah, no, and and that's the beauty of these images, right? You see the image as it happened, and you see um, things that you don't see on the on the cards. You know, the card manufacturers they wanted to highlight Mike and dribbling down the court. They didn't want you to see the spectators, but you get that wider lens on the original photograph and it just makes a very interesting and, and cool companion to the original card yeah you i was going to say companion piece there if you did not and the final two on this page we've got 10 more on the next uh i mean two baseball cards this is right up your alley you've got a 1954 tops hank aaron and a psa 8 holder and then you got a 56 top sandy koufax the grayback version in psa 9 I, I mean, Brian, I love, love, love the, the Hank Aaron rookie. I mentioned I have my 52 tops mantle painting over there. I also have the 54 tops Hank Aaron hanging right beside it. Uh, speak to just the popularity of the Hank Aaron rookie. And then maybe shed some light on what grayback means in terms of the 56. Yeah, so the I mean, the Aaron, again, is on that uh, iconic list of, of all-time baseball cards. I was struck by the centering and the color on this example. And, you know, again, we've handled hundreds of Hank Aaron rookie cards uh, in the last several years. You see registration issues and you see print quality issues. So it's not uncommon to see a print line, a big, large, distracting print line go through uh, a Hank Aaron card. And so this one's free of all those issues, which I thought was really sweet. The the Aaron, uh, excuse me the Kofax card grayback uh, refers to the first 180 cards in that set are available in white and grayback and so white's a little tougher but when you're talking about the grade of nine 
it's virtually impossible to get these cards in that high grade. I mean, we've submitted tens of thousands of cards, mostly vintage can count the nines on hall of famers that we've gotten. So this is a very, it's a great card. Two, uh, two wonderful offerings here. And I'm not sure what the fair market value is or what, what any of these items on the BWIC platform on collectible are going to fetch this in this February offering, which I believe will run into, into March, which is right around the corner. These do go live uh, literally in five minutes. So anyone who's joined recently, this is the collectible BWIC platform, Bids Wanted in Competition. And I recommend you go to the website to learn how you can get involved if you're interested in acquiring any of these pieces. Um, but when I say, you know, I'm not sure what any of these are really going to fetch. This seems to me like it, it's, a, it's a great item, but it might not break the bank in a PSEA. What, what is your kind of range for what a card like this is worth? So this is going to go for tens of thousands of dollars, you know, like we've sold nines for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, you can get into a one or a one and a half for a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars. I mean, this card might settle in the thirty-five, forty, forty-five thousand dollar range, maybe a little bit more because it's a nice looking example. Great. Well, thanks for that. Thanks for that insight. And yeah, well, I, it's still it's still a lot of money, but we're not talking hundreds of thousands at that point. Uh, continuing on another 56 grayback, Sandy Koufax. We've also got the, uh, what is it? One of my favorite types of cards, the essential credentials, Tom Brady and the BGS nine holder, but this is the numbered version out of 25. So extremely rare, extremely desirable. And then a set of dragon ball, uh, super something. I forget what that's called, but a complete set of BGS 10 black label. Now, I don't know how much you do in the trading card game. A category brian but i'm sure knowing how grading works a set of black labels that's got to be tough to get this is probably going to do very well uh if the right buyer comes along but please speak to these items uh, for a moment yeah so i mean bgs 10 black labels are are so hard to get we we do handle uh some of these trading card game cards largely pokemon we have some Yu-Gi-Oh expertise on our staff now but I know from, again, personal experience and resubmitting cards, going for that black label, they're, they're very hard to get. So that, that'll be exciting for collectors of that Dragon Ball set. The essential credentials, I mean, you had Josh from 90s Auctions on your program last night, and he and I have talked about all the great parallels and limited edition cards that were available in the 90s and the early 2000s. And so I think that that's what this Brady is right now. You know, it's a really scarce limited edition card from a popular set. It's got a great design. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously Brady's rookie year. We don't need to talk about how great Brady was. So mm -hmm. I think that'll excite collectors. All right. And the next row, we're, we're winding down here. Another Brady. This is, of course, the playoff contenders autograph rookie card, arguably his most important rookie card. You've also got a what is a beautiful 63 tops Pete Rose rookie. Pete is down on the bottom left hand corner of this card. And then finally, a, a Ronaldo card from 2020. Um, I got to tell you, when, I, when I'm looking at these three cards, Brian, my eyes just hone in on that 63 tops Pete Rose rookie. I love that card, even though a lot of people don't. I also love his second year card. But talk about talk about the Pete Rose card for a moment. And, you know, what sort of are, is there a is there any narrative or, or any kind of influence or motion in the hobby for collectors to avoid a rookie card that has multi players on it, where maybe only one of the four are important and, and go more towards the second year card, or is this still a highly coveted card? Definitely still highly coveted. I mean, that was tops MO in the the sixties. I mean, you have guys like Pete Rose, Nolan Ryan, Tom Seaver that share their rookie cards, Steve Carlton, Fergie Jenkins that are on multiplayer rookie cards. So uh, collectors know that that's what Topps design team loved to do during that period. But to your point, in some of those instances, the second year card where the player's on a standalone card does sell for a significant premium uh, to what you might expect, you know, in a, in a normal scenario. So uh, this card often seen with fish eyes, print, print imperfections. This one looked really clean. The Brady, I love the design. I think he looks like a real football player compared to some of his other early 
early football cards and you know the the soccer card we talked about international bidders earlier we're seeing a lot of bidders come in collecting uh, sports that maybe are not as popular in the states but uh, have a significant international following so that should that should turn some heads I just want to do uh, ask you one more thing when it comes to the the Pete Rose card and where the rookie shares the card with other players you mentioned Nolan Ryan with Jerry Kuzman on the card uh, Carlton Fisk, Johnny Bench, a couple other notable players. And then you went on to say that, you know, in cases where this is where this is the case, their second year card might fetch a premium, but not to the detriment of the rookie card. Is that what you were getting at? Correct. Right. It's yeah. totally in addition, you know, because you will have some people that say, look, I, I just want an early card where that guy's the main focus. But yeah, I mean, the, that does not in any way take away from what a rookie card is going to sell for because at the end of the day it's still still that player's rookie right on all right as we wind down here here we've got a dual autograph rookie impressions of michael jordan and lebron james the second dual autograph of these two on the bwick platform a 2020 tops chrome football sealed case and then another brady rookie the bowman chrome psa 10 uh i i do love this card and actually this card uh brian i I remember not buying this card for $1,500 every day, probably six or seven years ago. And now it's worth much more than that. Uh, I think we've kind of covered off LeBron and Michael Jordan already, but thoughts on, on either an unopened case and your, your, your feelings when it comes to unopened product. And even if you want to say anything about the Bowman Chrome Tom Brady. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember when the Bowman Chrome Tom Brady was priced, like you alluded to, I actually own this card in my collection. I got into it for a little bit more than 1500, but luckily less than where it sits today. Um, I, I think it's a great card. I, I liked the, the design. The unopened is really compelling. I mean, I think that that's a, a segment of our hobby that has grown considerably. We, I think, specialize in it here at REA. We have a number of people on staff that collect it and uh, have great relationships in that hobby. I think we are going to have over 500 unopened lots in our spring auction. So there's two schools of thought. You can buy and hold in case somebody like a Patrick Mahomes or a LeBron James or a Mike Trout becomes the, you know, the next greatest thing, or you can go treasure hunting. And so it, it appeals to uh, multiple different types of collectors. And I think that that's really uh, a neat thing about the unopened market. Very nice. And then the last item is a uh, Patrick Mahomes ab Panini Absolute Kaboom, a Kaboom. It's simply known as the Kaboom, yeah. a gold Kaboom, which I believe is out of 10. This is in a PSA 9 holder. Let's let's take this angle when it comes because we've talked about, you know, how great Mahomes is and will likely go down as an all-time great. But let's talk about how the a company like Panini had innovated back in 2013 when the first Kaboom came out. They came out with this design. It, it's got a lot of sort of a comic book art type of feel to it. People really gravitated towards the Kaboom cards. They keep on putting out Kaboom cards every year. What are your thoughts on Kabooms in general? Do you think that at a, at a certain point in time, a company like Panini should just stop and come out with something new so as not to oversaturate the market? I mean, I think the collector demand is there. I mean, I'm not personally a modern collector, but the kabooms catch my eye, you know, and, and going back to the comic books, I, I think of Batman, boom, pow, when I see these kabooms. And I think it's a great design. Um, and I think if the collectors love it, I mean, look at Tops and Tops Heritage. They're riding that train uh, for, for decades. So I think collectors will ultimately tell these manufacturers what's working and what's not. And I think the Kabooms probably have some staying power. I think you, you're probably right. You call out Topps Heritage. I always wish that that we could get Topps Heritage back in hockey because I would definitely collect that set every year. I don't really collect any set right now, but I loved when Topps Heritage hockey was out from 2000 to 2002. We had three uh, wonderful years of that back then. Well, hey, I want to say thanks a lot for uh, for speaking to all the assets on the BWIC platform on Collectible. And thanks for joining. This was a lot of fun, Brian. Full of knowledge as always. This is the second time that you've been on a live stream with me. We'll have to do it again. Hopefully we won't wait a year and a half until we do it for our third time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Love, love chatting about the hobby. Appreciate what you do and uh, looking forward to coming back soon. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. You can follow Brian's 
rea auctions on instagram at robert edward auctions you'll see it on the ticker in one moment here it comes also on twitter at rea online make sure you are following both of those you can follow me on instagram jaylee underscore sports cards live and on twitter at sports cards liv1 and if you are not yet subscribed to this youtube channel please take a moment and do so hit that notification bell so you know when we go live as we do always. Thank you very much, Mitch. Good to see you. Know that you're there. Thank you for joining. And thank you, everyone else. Brian, hang tight one moment. This episode, everybody, is over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.